Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast, hosted by three friends who were brought together by their heroin-addicted partners. We became each other's biggest support through some of life's toughest times. We're not licensed professionals, and nothing in this conversation is professional advice. But we hope our stories offer a glimpse into how these issues weave into our everyday lives. You're not alone. We can all get through it together. If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with, or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining us for our virtual support group. For details, visit recoveringto.com. We know what you're going through and we're here to help. We're Recovering Too. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are over the moon elated. We have Sarah Weston from Hazelden and Betty Ford Foundation. And I'm going to kick this off. Sarah, you have so many years. I think it's 16 years with Hazelden and Betty Ford Foundation. And so I'm going to read your bio and then we're going to jump in. And I am so excited for our conversation. Thank so. You. Sarah is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor at the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation since October of 2004. She has had a variety of roles, including a counselor in primary and long-term residential treatment, a managed care specialist, and currently a recovery management professional in the Connections program. She has a bachelor's degree in chemical dependency counselor and community psychology, a master's degree in health and human services administration, um, and your special expertise is a treatment clinician, special interest in working with young adults, women, and families, and you're based in Center City, Minnesota. Correct. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Yeah, lots of good experience and wisdom coming at us today, so thank you. Well, um, Sarah, um, let's kind of get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe your personal background, your professional background? Um, So, you know, like I said, like you said, I've been working at Hazelden Betty Ford since uh, 2004. Um, You know, uh, professionally, I have had a lot of different roles within the organization. Um, I always tell people, though, that I'm most passionate about the role I play as a coach in the connection program, because um, really day to day, I'm helping people live their best possible lives in recovery and help them get to that point in their recovery. And I, and I certainly enjoy the work that I get to do with the family members, because that's a big component of the job that I have right now. Um, you know, personally, uh, I got into this work because I come from a, a family where there's mental illness and substance abuse that's been present. Um, you know, I often credit my mother because she was an adult child of an alcoholic and I very much saw the long reaching effects that her father's substance use had on her um, and he died from his um, substance use disorder. Um, so it became very apparent at this at time that there was a lot of feelings about that. And as I kind of 
you know, my mom talked about it and she just, there was no resources available for her. There was, you know, people didn't really talk about things like interventions. People didn't talk to them about Al-Anon. They didn't know how to get somebody into treatment. And that always kind of led me to believe if that support had been available to them, would the outcome have been different? It may have, it may not have, but that's certainly driven my passion um, to make sure that individuals and family members, you know, can find recovery. Yeah, that's cool. Um, question, you mentioned, you know, your mom talking about this. Was this something you guys discussed openly, like as a family when you were growing up? Were you aware of what was going on? Did you always know things or guess? curious what that family dynamic is I think a lot we of we didn't uh we didn't really know that um I I think it was uh, like in most families I think it was a well-kept secret mm. um we definitely had the don't talk don't trust don't feel uh rules in the family system um I think it became very apparent it's kind of funny because we laugh because I was in college starting my classes for this and I came home and I put a book on the counter and I said mom this reads just like our family uh, uh. this is just like what our how our family operates and that really got her attention and as we've gotten closer through the years she's been really able to share some of that with me um I do know that when I reflect back on spending time with my grandfather now, who was a wonderful man, a great person, uh, there was a lot of things that I realize now were very abnormal in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, probably not normal to drive with a case full of beer in the front seat and all your grandkids, you know, in the back of the station wagon. Um, you know, and just the amount that he was drinking, like when you look back on it, it was just really a lot. Yeah. And, and the fact is, you know, denial is so prevalent in families as well. Um, when he passed away, you know, everybody clung to the fact that it was pneumonia, you know, like he was really sick and he had pneumonia. And later in my life, I kind of thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute, this is somebody that was drinking every day um, and hadn't been drinking for three days because he was so ill. You know, you kind of think about that. I'm guessing he was probably in withdrawal and didn't even realize that he was in withdrawal yeah. at that point in time. Oh, man. Yeah. So how did you pick this field then to go into this field of work or why? why I, I think the why for me really came down to that I wanted to see a different legacy I knew there could be a different legacy in the breaking of the cycle so that this didn't have to continue on to the next generation and again I just am super passionate about helping people find recovery um, through you know whether that be through treatment another means or if it's for a family member just talking to them about what it means to be a family member in recovery what's normal what's abnormal um it's it's become uh you know ever more important for me that family members have as much support as the 
the loved one who's struggling with the substance use disorder. Sure. Well, you've been with your organization now 16 years, I think it's or more so. Um, that would imply to me that you must really like align with their mission and the work that's being done there. Uh, otherwise, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so, so, can you give us a little background, maybe on on the organization? Yeah. So the, the, mis the mission of Hazelden Betty Ford is to be a force of healing and hope for individuals and families affected by addiction to alcohol and other drugs. Um, so yes, very much so. The work I do is very mission-driven and aligned with what the organization believes. Um, you know, Hazelden Betty Ford was founded in 1949 um, in a small town called Center City, Minnesota. Um, it has had a very rich history of being a pioneer in the treatment industry. Um, and in 1982, you know, First Lady Betty Ford opened the Betty Ford Center after sharing her own struggles with her, her substance use. And uh, we were able to merge our organizations a few years back, um, you know, really with the goal to be a premier provider and a voice in the in the addiction field. Gotcha. And those services that you provide, can you give a little bit of a rundown on what what all that entails? Sure. So we have a really large footprint. Um, we have locations nationwide from coast to coast um, that people can access, and it's a very comprehensive continuum of services that we offer. Um, we offer services from residential to day treatment to outpatient. Um, we have mental health services. Um, in addition, we have a lot of services that people can access um, to help them manage their recovery. Um, you know, the connection program being one of those. We have a, a computer-based support um, called the, the MORE program, which is my ongoing recovery experience. And in addition, um, you know, we have services for families, we have services for children. Um, we also have uh, this great opportunity for people to engage in 12-step in retreats and other educational retreats that are offered at our, typically in person at our Dan Anderson Renewal Center because of the pandemic that has all gone virtual. Um, so we still are able to provide those services. Awesome. And, and just like, um, cause we have people listening from coast to coast, um, which is really wonderful that there's resources from you guys also from coast to coast. So you guys accept insurance, like those type of things. If anybody wanted to kind of, um, get their loved one connected with Hazelden Betty Ford. So yes, we work with insurance, um, actively work with insurance. Um, so, you know, if you were to want to come in, that's one of the things that we would check on for you is to see if you have the insurance coverage that you would need for, um, for services. And also we find out what you would need to do to access those benefits because, you know, with managed care, oftentimes those benefits are subject to approval um, mm -hmm. and medical necessity. So it's, that's one thing that we're always checking on when people are coming in to treatment and then throughout their treatment, that's an active ongoing process. So, you know, we have, like I used to be a managed care 
professional. Our managed care staff is very well versed in working with insurance companies and they are actively seeking coverage for people that are in, in treatment. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes you there, when you hear about treatment facilities and things, there's this idea that you have to be like well off or have like have a family who has a lot of money to be able to send you to somewhere for treatment or like you can't get, get help if you don't have the means or resources. Are there like options for people who maybe they, they don't have insurance, they don't just have a lot of money, like or what, what would be suggested for them? You know, I think that that's kind of dependent upon, you know, where they're at, you know, I mean, oftentimes we might be able, you know, if they can't come to our facility, you know, we always want to try to connect them with the best possible fit. So oftentimes that might be connecting them to a low cost treatment center, you know, that's in their area that they can access, um, you know, and every state's a little different in Minnesota. Um, you know, we have what we call a rule 25 assessment. And so if you meet certain income guidelines, you can go to your county, get an assessment and they will pay for your substance abuse treatment. Oh, um, wow. So that, that doesn't exist state to state. I mean, Minnesota is very lucky in that regard. So we're always trying to look at where we can get people. And, you know, there are a lot of providers out there that provide really low cost care and and they're you know they provide good care and needed care for people that may not have the resources to access a, a, you know a higher end treatment center or whatever you would want to say to that sure yeah that's helpful to know that you know if somebody calls you because sometimes you might not know a lot of resources but if you're listening and Hazelden Betty Ford is a familiar name you can at least feel like okay I'll call them and I can be pointed in a direction you know, what, whatever that might be. And I think that that's helpful. A lot of times I just remember feeling so lost on like, what should my first call be? Like, where do I even start? So. And I think that's really hard because I think it's, you know, if you're not familiar with, you know, substance abuse treatment, it's really hard to know where to start and what's a good prog, you know, what's a good program, what's considered a quality program. You know, I, I think that the things that we really look for when we're looking at, you know, quality of programs is that they're using evidence-based practices um, in their treatment setting, um, that they may have additional accreditations through JCO or other um, systems that ensure that there's a level of quality that's being given in the care. So we really look for those kinds of things too. Because um, those two things can be really important mm -hmm. in, in selecting a provider too. Sure. Well, I think that's kind of a great segue into, you know, Sarah, when you and I kind of had our initial conversation, we were kind of batting around different ideas of kind of what to talk about. And so we kind of landed on kind of the lens of, of when you first call. You realize something's funky. You're like, I don't know. And then maybe you really realize maybe your loved one went to jail and you're like, whoa, okay, something's up. They've been, they're in their seventh car accident in two months. Like, I think something is up. And so you're, a family member calls, you're the first person they talk to possibly. 
Mm -hmm. What are you hearing on the end of the phone? And what are you saying to those people? You know, I, you know, most of the time when people are, are calling us, it's because life has kind of reached that crisis point um, where things are rapidly deteriorating. Um, and there's been either, there may have been a major event that spurred them to come in. Uh, it could have been a relapse. It could have been something like you're talking about jail, car accidents, or it could be that, you know, they're just simply sick and tired of being sick and tired, um, or their consequences are very quickly catching up with them. And so most of the time when people call, they're not doing very well. They're in crisis. So the first thing we're going to want to find out is what are you looking for? What's happening? What's going on? What are you looking for in terms of you know, treatment services or services for yourself? What are you looking for? Um, and so that's kind of where we start. And if they're interested in services or treatment with us, the first thing we're going to do is kind of some of the things I talked about. You know, we're going to find out what they're interested in. We're going to find out if they have insurance benefits that cover and how they're going to access those benefits. Um, once that process, you know, we kind of figure out what the coverage is, if they have coverage, what the process is. The next step in that is the person who's seeking treatment is going to um, be scheduled with one of our um, patient placement counselors, and they're going to do a comprehensive chemical dependency or substance abuse assessment. And what they're really looking for at that point in time is what's motivating them to come into treatment, you know, what their substance use looks like currently and historically, you know, any type of treatment attempts or recovery attempts they've had, and what the outcome of that was, so, meaning usually how long did you stay sober. Um, and then they're really kind of also looking at the social history. So what's happening at home? What's happening at work? You know, do they have any other you know, co-occurring mental health or physical issues. And then we're using that information basically to determine what level of care is going to be appropriate for them within our services. Um, and, and once we determine that, then the process of kind of getting that person to treatment actually has started. So then it might be that, you know, we're Book, having people book flights to come into the treatment center, or, you know, maybe we have to wait to get that pre-authorization from their, their, their insurance provider. So we're getting that information and, you know, encouraging them to stay put so that we can get, get that information. And then once all of that information is clear, um, then we're going to bring them into one of our centers. Gotcha. Um, would you say that generally the people making that initial phone call, does it tend to be the person themselves who is looking for treatment or do you get a lot of phone calls from family members? Or I, I would say it's a fair combination of both. Um, you know, oftentimes family members are calling because their loved one may, might be refusing treatment and they really don't know what the next step is, you know? Um, and they might be looking for us to give them some guidance. You know, um, sometimes that can mean that we might give them um, 
a referral to an interventionist that we have relationships with. Um, that also sometimes can be where, where we come in in the connection program um, because we can do some, some individualized coaching with them on things that they can do maybe to, to help motivate their loved ones to go into treatment. Um, so I think that oftentimes when families call, it's, it's not good. I mean, they're really in a state of crisis and they're really looking for that immediate, like, I really don't know what to do here. I am lost. Um, and I think it's, it's frightening. I mean, I think for the family, it's really scary when, you know, their loved one is denying that there's a problem and they don't want to come into treatment and they're kind of like, where do we go from here? Um, you know, sometimes as you kind of referred to earlier, we might be the first person that they're ever talking to about their loved one's substance abuse and the need for treatment. Sure. And so, go ahead. And so that call, like, I mean, for me, you know, I'm going into the access center. I'm like, my mind is blown because I was totally blindsided. So are you coaching them? Like they're calling you, I guess for me, like I'd be calling you because I didn't really know if it was an, an addiction or a substance use disorder. Like, are you coaching people in, yeah, maybe driving with a case of beer with your kids, you know, that's probably not typical or getting in an accident with a semi and passing it, you know, things like that. Like, are you kind of helping people realize that maybe there is a problem? Because for me, I didn't know there was a problem. Um, I, I think it depends. That might not be something necessarily that they're doing right away in the intake process where, I mean, we may be providing some of that basic education, but like if somebody were working with me, we're definitely going to be talking about, you know, you know, what's happening and I'm as I, you know, and talking about what does addiction, how does addiction show up? What, what are the signs, you know, that maybe your loved one isn't doing so well um, or might be pointing to a larger problem. And, you know, things that we often talk about is they're using more than intended, you know, all the time and they're, they're intoxicated and you're starting to see things like tolerance where they're needing more and more to get the same effect or, you know, they're using and they're going into withdrawal, you know, so those are kind of some like right away, like right off the bat, you know, um, you know, they're not fulfilling their major obligations, you know, maybe their work is suffering. Maybe if it's an adolescent or a young person, they're not doing well in school. Um, you know, they're not fulfilling their obligations and responsibilities at home, you know, so there's the there's just those kind of changes and, you know, they continue to use and I, I'm despite having negative consequences, you know, yep. They've got their third DWI, but they really don't think that that's a problem mm -hmm. or yes, you know, CPS got involved because they were drinking with or using in front of their children, but it's not a problem, you know? And, and so that's that kind of piece where they're continuing to use despite those kind of circumstances you know, using in situations that are physically hazardous, you know, driving under the influence is another, uh, is one. I think you, with the opiate epidemic in particular, you have to be worried about 
overdosing, you know, if they're injecting, that's very dangerous and not good physically for their health. So they're, and they're continually putting themselves in those types of situations. You know, they're, they're becoming more socially isolated. You know, they're pulling away from their family and friends when family and friends try to address like, Hey, what's going on here? I'm kind of confused. It's usually met with defensiveness and I don't know what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of trying to push that out of the, the picture as being a possibility. Um, And I think that, you know, substance use just basically takes over every aspect of their life. And they're starting to spend the majority of their time either thinking about the substance, finding the substance, or recovering from their substance use. And that's how the majority of their life is going. I think that's so wonderful, everything that you just said. It was almost, I, I, you know, some people know what's going on. I didn't but I was checking those boxes. Like, had I heard this podcast and you were saying these things, like I was almost putting them in their different corners and not kind of meshing them all together. But hearing you say those things, I'm like, oh yes, yes, yes. And so, um, you know, say somebody is, you know, searching, there's a lot of resources and documents before they call you guys. You guys have a ton of resources on your website that people could kind of start to do their own research. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a lot on the website, which is www.hazeldenbettyford.org. And on there, you're going to find a plethora of information about what's it look like getting your person into treatment. What kind of some of the things I touched on um, about how to find a good treatment center, what the signs and symptoms of addiction might be. You know, and then of course, the resources that we offer at Hazel and Betty Ford are readily available on that website. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So can you tell us about the connections program, like the family part of it? So, you know, loved ones, they're their thing, but it's all, it's a family disease. Like that's how we feel. And I think you kind of share the same sentiment. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, you know, we have, so there's two different kind of branches within the connection program you know we have the the full connection program that's how we refer to it and that's a very comprehensive program where we're not only coaching the participant or the substance um, person with a substance use disorder we're also coaching their family members concurrently as we're coaching them and then we also have some accountability measures that are in place um, like random testing so that we can do random they can do random testing through us and again kind of takes the family member out of that role of having to be the one that's doing the monitoring now specifically what you're kind of referring to is the connection for families program and the connection for families program is basically as a family member you're looking for direction on what to do maybe it is that your loved one uh doesn't want to come into treatment and you're not sure how to handle that maybe you know, you have suspicion that they're using and you don't know how to address that. Maybe your person's in recovery and 
the fact that they're still doing well and you're still struggling and you can't figure out why you're still struggling when when your loved one is working a program of recovery. Um, it also could be just that, you know, the family is so enmeshed, you know, with the this person with the substance use disorder that they need to sort out, you know, where am I falling in this and what do I need to do to start my healing? And so if they, if people sign up with us, what happens is, is they get um, assigned one of our recovery coaches who are all licensed alcohol and drug counselors. Um, and they get six 30 minute sessions of coaching, um, which is done either telephonically or via video. Um, they can have their choice on what their comfort level is with that. And we talk about those things. We're talking giving them education and support about addiction and recovery. We're talking about the things like boundaries and communication and what's normal and what's not normal. Um, and, and also just really trying to focus in on what they're doing and what they're not doing. Um, and also really directing them about the importance of self-care and taking care of yourself and being okay, even if your loved one is not okay. And that's a really hard place to get to sometimes for people is to be okay, even if their loved one is, is struggling. Yeah, I think that's so difficult. Unfortunately, we kind of have a friend kind of going through it right now. And you know, it, it's, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for her, but like for me in that situation, it's like, if I have to pull back, if my husband goes into active use, like there's a very good possibility he may die. And so you almost feel stuck on stay with this person. I'm trying to manage all of their behaviors. Re regardless, they're going to get their stuff when and where they're going to get their stuff. There's nothing that I can do, but the feeling that you pulling back, um, and that they really may die is such a scary and awful thing to feel. That powerlessness, that level of powerlessness, that level of fear is one of the most overwhelming things that family members talk about with me in one in our calls and you know the stark reality is unfortunately without treatment people can die from this disease um and so sometimes you know the work is not it's not about having them detach sometimes the work is about how can you support this person in a healthy way without enabling them even though they are in the throes of their substance use. Um, because sometimes, you know, I'm all about, you know, detachment and setting boundaries, but sometimes asking somebody to do that is a really hard ask. You know, and, and in, the, in the spirit of meeting people where they're at and, and kind of where their struggle is, the strategy could be, very different depending on the circumstance. You know, I might be coaching parents of an adolescent about, you know, how do you have boundaries with your adolescent and still, you know, support them or not enable them as we're working to get them towards treatment. You know, 
um, you know, and giving them tactics and strategies that they can use. Whereas I might be talking to somebody else who says, listen, this person's been in and out of treatment six times. This is the hundredth time that they've relapsed when they've been with me. I'm done. Mm -hmm. And then kind of walking through, like, what does that look like? And, and something that I think is important to touch on with family members is that one of the things um, that I talk about quite a bit is when your loved one is still using and you're kind of watching that process and you're part of that process, there's an anticipatory grieving process that happens, meaning you're already grieving because you're kind of seeing the destruction happening. Mm. You know, and, and so in some ways, you're kind of preparing yourself for that inevitability. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, how do you, you know, it's not easy to say to somebody, well, yeah, you're right. If you step back, your loved one may not survive, but they may not survive regardless if they don't get help. Yeah. Um, anticipatory uh, grieving. I'm glad to have a name for it. Cause I know that there were times where, you know, like I would catch myself kind of like thinking about what, like, okay, if Jake died, like what shirt would he want to wear? Like at the funeral, like kind of thinking through like funeral process stuff. And then I would get like, catch myself doing that and almost feel guilty or like a bad person for like, thinking about, thinking about those things, but it was like, it's a, it's a real possibility. And it's, I guess, almost a way of trying to prepare yourself for like accepting that that could happen, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, an interesting thing. And, you know, and I think again, where you meet people, where you're at, you're going to have people I've worked with people that are very accepting of the fact that, hey, you know, their loved one may not come out of this and they're not, they may not be okay. Um, And they've already, you know, started taking steps to heal themselves because I think healing is a big part of this. Mm -hmm. Even if that happens, they're already in the process of trying to heal themselves from that. Um, And in the other sense of the word, like, you know, they, they might be really just feeling that. And it's important for somebody to validate. I think sometimes that's a lot of what I do. Validate what you're experiencing is normal in a situation that for most people is very abnormal, but it's normal in the realm of addiction. Yeah. And I think something else that we had said in our very first conversation, um, you know, you tell somebody, I tell somebody my husband has cancer, they're going to bring me sweets and, and offer to watch my kids and whatever it might be. And you said, yeah, nobody brings you a casserole when you tell people that your husband is dealing with a substance use disorder. Well, first you would have to tell people, <laughs> which that, yeah. You know, and that that actually came from a really great article um, of a father who wrote about that and compared his wife's experience of having breast cancer and his daughter's experience of being a person that was struggling with a substance use order and how black and white it was in difference. And I think 
unfortunately, with substance use disorders, there's still a stigma about it. I still think that it is widely misunderstood. I think it still has moral implications tied to it. And I think when you try to talk about it, people are like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And, you know, oftentimes I think that's the struggle for family members because, you know, they have tried to share and then you have somebody saying, well, why haven't you divorced them? Why haven't you left them? Why aren't you in treatment? And so they don't get that kind of like unconditional positive regard, like, gosh, that must be really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this is statistic and maybe Sarah, you could correct me if I'm wrong. It's like one in seven people are affected by substance use disorder. So like, I I know people who have had cancer, but um, people don't talk about, you know, the substance use disorder. However, when I have come out to different people like, Hey, you know, I have this podcast, not one person, not one person has not come back and said, Oh, my mom, Oh, my uncle, Oh, my brother. In every single situation that I've, I've ever told somebody about my husband, somebody always has a person that they know. Inevitably, when I talk about being a substance abuse counselor outside of the realm of where I work, that's always what happens. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know this person or this person. And, 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 and it's like they're grasping on to the fact like, oh, somebody else knows So I think that the part that's so important here is we really need to work on busting the stigma and and shattering the stigma related to substance use disorders. And the way that we can do that is really start talking about our experience and not only talking about the experience, but also talking about that people do get well, people do get sober. Um, It might take a while, it might be a really bumpy road, but they do get sober. You can hear the passion in my voice because the reality is, is if people didn't get sober, I can't do this job. Because I have seen people get sober where I'm kind of at first glance, like, whoa, this person's going to have a really hard go of it. And it's unpredictable. I, I, I might be right. I might be wrong. But you know what? The fact is, is that people do get well. Family members do get well. Yes. A um, piece of what you said of like the, it being unpredictable and, you know, some people you might guess be surprised. I think that um, can be hopeful for people. And that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Like, what if family members are like, oh, they've already gone through treatment three times. Like, is it worth the fourth or like, I don't know, what would you tell people that way? Or the I, similar, if um, the idea of if someone doesn't just like go to treatment on their own, like let's say, you know, get the nudge from the judge or family members have given an ultimatum and they go into treatment that way. Like, is there hope for those people as well? Like, I think that sometimes questions that family members have, like, well, is this going to be a, like a wasted time at treatment if they're not doing it on their own or this is the seventh time they've been? Well, here's my, you know, at Hazelden Betty Ford, we really believe that 
treatment is very important. So, you know, we really want to keep people engaged in treatment for as long as we possibly can. Sometimes that is impossible depending upon circumstances, but research supports that long-term engagement is a huge predictor in outcomes as it relates to substance use disorders and recovery. So if I was talking to somebody that says, hey, yeah, this is his seventh treatment, what good is it going to do? I usually counter that with a bit of research or a bit of statistics. Um, I I'll have to find the study, but there was a study that was done where basically it said it takes on average four separate episodes of care for a person to sustain recovery for a year. That's an interesting stat. It's an interesting stat. And so, um, you know, reality is, is that um, treatment is good. More treatment can improve outcomes long-term. So you just never know when it's going to click. You know what I mean? So, it, you know, I think it's that part of it. And the reality is, and again, kind of your question about the differences in motivation, there really isn't much of a difference. The outcomes are pretty much the same. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I, it really just comes down a lot, again, to that idea of long-term engagement. Um, you know, so keeping people engaged in a continuum of care for a longer period of time and getting them connected to community-based resources, you know, such as your recovery support groups or individual therapists um, or coaches, whoever that is, is a, a high predictor of, of success and long-term recovery. Now, the other part of that that I think is important as it relates to a continuum, we're talking about a chronic disease. And so if somebody does start struggling and they're within our continuum, we can adjust the services to meet their needs. And, and on the opposite side of that, if they're meeting all the appropriate behavioral milestones, we're stepping them down into less services with the goal that they have the skills to be able to self-manage their recovery. Sure. Yeah, that's good. It, those are like positive things to hear. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it can also be, those can also be the challenging things to hear from, from a loved one's perspective. I think a lot of times we want just like a clear cut answer of like, okay, you do X, Y, and Z, and then you're all good. And just that, you know, everything we've been talking about, is there's, it's not a black and white situation. There's so many factors that go into each situation and the way that you handle it. And um, it can be really tough, but. And I think sometimes I think again, that think that thinking that you're talking about, just tell me what the plan is and what we're going to do and why this is going to be successful. Oftentimes that can mirror the the, the thinking of the substance, the person with a substance use disorder too, because they're thinking, well, I'm just going to go to treatment. I'm going to go to these meetings and I'm going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And, and kind of underestimating the work that recovery is. Um, and so part of my, my job is to really help educate people to understand that recovery is a process. It's a long process um, that people 
this is a, you know, Hazel and Betty Ford believes this is a chronic and progressive illness. So what are you doing to manage your illness um, over the course of your lifetime? What does that look like? Um, you know, and really working with people to understand that this is something you have to learn to manage just like you would any other chronic illness. Yes. Exactly. You know, I always say like, if you have diabetes and your blood sugar is out of, out of sorts, you don't go to the doctor one time and say, well, just eat this way and never come back and your blood sugar is going to be fine. Right? No, that's not how it works. We teach people what they need to do to manage. And that's really kind of what recovery management is and kind of Hazelden's philosophy is we want to give people the skills and the tools that they can manage with less support. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, Sarah, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm so glad that you were able to come on with us. Um, as we wrap up, are there any parting words that you'd like to say to family members or anything that you'd like to share with us before we go? Well, I think a couple of things, and I think for family members, don't be afraid to reach out. You know, it's, it's okay to talk about what's happening. It's okay with safe people to really reach out and get some help for this. Um, it's important. Your healing is important. Um, as much as your loved ones, healing is important. Um, and if you do want ever to talk to Hazel and Betty Ford, um, you can call us directly at 1-855-407-6936. Um, or you can visit our website, www.hazeldenbettyford.org and get in contact with us that way. Awesome. Well, Sarah, again, big, big thank you. We will put um, the information of how to get a hold of Hazel and Betty Ford in the show notes for everybody. Um, thank everybody for listening uh, and keep coming back. Thanks for tuning in to Boy Problems Podcast. If you enjoyed today's discussion, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this episode. Find us on social media, and if you have questions or ideas for topics, email us at hello at boyproblemspod.com.